You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, good morning. Uh, Welcome back to the Dean's class as we continue through Ephesians, and we've made our way to Ephesians chapter 2. And we're just going to do the first three verses this morning. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 is maybe one of the greatest uh, chapters, I think, in all of the Bible And Ephesians 1 and 2 together capture what the Christian faith is all about. Uh, What we believe as Christians is captured in Ephesians chapter 1, and the Christian experience of life uh, is found in chapter 2. And so this morning we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and you'll find it helpful to have your Bibles open to page 976 if you have uh, an Advent leather-bound Bible, Uh, but it's uh, Ephesians chapter 2, the first three verses. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So yes, uh, Ephesians chapter 1 Uh, The great basic truths of the Christian faith, the basis for Christianity, and the threefold work of God in our salvation. God the Father choosing us, God the Son redeeming us by the shedding of His blood, and the Holy Spirit sealing us and sealing to us the promises of God and Himself coming to dwell within us. And we get to chapter 2 today, where we learn of the nature of Christian experience. Paul expounds what happens to us when we become Christians. And in a word, verses 1 through 10 say that we experience a spiritual resurrection from death to life. And in the first three verses we're just going to speak of this morning, we're going to talk about diagnosis, strictly which is not always the best thing. We're going to get to the prescription. Uh, In fact, we've already talked about the prescription of the work of God in securing our salvation. But Paul here is now turning to look back. Do you remember what it was your life was like before you came to the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you remember who you were, where you've come from, and where you are now? Now, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've probably heard many testimonies given, and there's a certain language to testimonies, and we all try our hardest to paint this stark picture of this is what I was like before I was a Christian, and this is what I was like after I became a Christian. In fact, we probably spend too much time on talking about what we were like before we were Christians than after Christians, but that's a talk for another time. But we'll oftentimes hear people say things about their lives before Christ, and we wonder, are they exaggerating a bit? Are they overstating how bad things were? Were they really the president of the puppy-kicking club? And so is Paul overstating here the experience of those of us who have come to know Jesus Christ of what we were like before we came to know Him? 
Is he taking it a bit too far? Is he speaking in hyperbole? Well, no. Paul is giving it to us with both barrels uh, an unqualified statement of what our spiritual state is before we came to know the Lord Jesus Christ and what a spiritual state is apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. So those who do not know Him as Lord and Savior, this is a description of what they are in their nature and the reality of their existence right now, whether they know it or not. William Hendrickson talked about the importance of understanding where we've come from and who we are now in this way. He said, the more men learn to see the dimensions of their utterly lost condition, the more they will also, by God's grace, appreciate their marvelous deliverance. If you don't know where you've come from spiritually, you'll never appreciate the riches of God's mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can tell when I speak with people who say that they're Christians and yet have no concept of where they've come from. They have a misunderstanding of anthropology, spiritually speaking. That at best they think, well, maybe I'm a little bit hindered. Maybe I needed a little bit of help along the way. But that flies in the face of what St. Paul is saying here. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. If you don't know that you were dead, you'll never appreciate the fact that you're alive. If you sell short the truth about the human condition you'll never be able to appreciate what God went through to secure your salvation and what it means to live out your redemption now. Well, what does Paul mean when he says that we are dead in our sins and trespasses? Well, here he's saying that we are utterly and completely dead, spiritually speaking. You know, sometimes there's the thought that there are people who are seeking God. And in some sense, Paul acknowledges that when he talks about trespasses. Trespasses means just what it means. So if it's somebody else's property and you've set foot on it and you're not allowed to be there, it means that you have trespassed. And certainly there are degrees of trespassing. You can set foot over the line and get yourself on somebody else's property where you're not supposed to be, or you can go acres deep into it. And like Jesus said to Nicodemus once before, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And yet, whether you're a foot over or acres deep, you're still guilty. And there's no excuse to be made of, well, I'm only a foot over. Well, whether you miss the kingdom of heaven by a foot or by acres, you still miss it. In fact, it might be altogether more tragic if you've just missed it by a foot. But in fact, there's nothing that you can do to will yourself into the kingdom of God because spiritually, we are dead. And Paul here is, is addressing the Ephesian Christians who are Gentile believers and saying, you were dead. 
But now I know and have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are plenty of biblical parallels to this and stories that illustrate this. One is the parable of the Good Samaritan. You remember? The Samaritan was on the side of the road, left for dead, as good as dead. I'm sorry, the the traveler was until the Samaritan came along. And the Samaritan was the one who took them and picked them up and took them to the inn and nursed them back into health and gave money to the innkeeper for the restoration of this person who had been left in the side of the road for dead. Well, everybody else passed them by. Now, often when we preach this, and it's fine to draw this from it, but, but to ask the question, are we reaching out to those who are in need? But I think the overarching narrative of that story or the point that Jesus is trying to make is not that, not that we're the good Samaritan, but that we're the man in the ditch and Jesus himself is the good Samaritan. And unless Jesus comes to you and intervenes and pulls you up out of that ditch, you're going to die. And not just die physically, but die eternally. Or if you were in church last week, which of course you weren't, we heard about Lazarus being raised from the dead. Now, Lazarus had been laid in the tomb for four days, so much so when Jesus said, roll away the stone, they said, you don't want to do that. I love how the King James Version puts it, he stinketh. But they roll away the stone, and if you go to the church there in Bethany today, the traditional site of where Lazarus was raised from the dead, you'll see this wonderful mosaic, and in this mosaic is Lazarus coming out all bandaged up, and down in the corner is a man holding his nose and going like this. The stench of death was upon him, but how is it that Lazarus came out of the tomb? Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus didn't say, hey, I've been waiting on you. I was dead, but I willed myself back to life. I thought really long and hard about what my options were, and I realized I just needed to get up and get out of the tomb. It wasn't until God's creative word is spoken into the heart of an unbeliever that faith springs forth and we're made alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. Until Jesus says, you come out. You're dead. Because when he speaks of this, it's not just the bad deeds that we do that account for our sins, although they are those things. But in fact, it's a condition that we find ourselves in. And so the default spiritual state of fallen humanity is dead, dead from reality, certainly dead to the Lord Jesus Christ, dead to God's Word, dead to anything that has to do with God. Here's how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. If you're spiritually dead, 
You can listen to the Word of God. You can sit under faithful Bible teaching for years and yet still not understand a word that the preacher is saying. I used the illustration last week of William Wilberforce taking William Pitt the Younger, the prime minister at the time in England in the latter part of the 19th century to hear Richard Cecil preach. And Wilberforce said that Cecil was masterful and that he was so moved that he found himself weeping in the pew along with many other people who were there in Bedford Row listening to Richard Cecil preach that Sunday. And on the way out, he asked Pitt, well, what do you think of that? And Pitt said, I've never heard such nonsense in my life. I didn't understand a word that Richard Cecil was saying. Wilberforce was moved to tears because he was listening with spiritual ears where William Pitt the Younger didn't have the ears to hear he was dead. Not simply hindered, but dead and sealed in a spiritual tomb. And here Paul says, and this is, this is the condition in which you once walked. This is the situation that you were once in. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and His Spirit dwells within you, you know that to be all too true. In fact, your understanding of sin has become more acute since you've become a believer in Jesus Christ. And Paul reminds them, do you remember that? Do you remember what it was like before God intervened in your heart, in your life, to bring him to you, to bring you to him? Because this is how you once walked, like the living dead, like spiritual zombies. And how did you know where to go before you knew the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, here was your compass. Here were your life instructions. You followed the course of this world. You sort of put your finger up and tried to discern where is the world going? And we all fall into this trap where we feel immense peer pressure from people to go the way of the world. But the difference is, is when you become a Christian, all of a sudden the Spirit begins to work and check you in your heart. You begin to feel your conscience pricked and you think, That's not the way that I should go because the way of the world is to go this way over and against God's Word. But this is the way that God is prompting me to go, and this is the way that I know that I should go, and I know that it's going to cost me mightily because now I'm going against the world. And so as a Christian, laying low really isn't an option because where everyone else is following the course of this world, when you're not it becomes obvious in a very painful and real way. But not only are they following the course of this world, but following the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil himself. Now, this is an unpopular notion, but just wait until we get to some more unpopular notions later on in verse 3. But the fact of the matter is that there's a throne in our lives. And if we're not following God, it means we're in rebellion against God. And it means actually we're taking our cues not from the living God, but from the devil himself. Now, nobody, well, very few people, I should say, are going around saying, well, I follow the devil. 
But remember, they're blind. They don't know what they're doing. They think that they're following a reasonable voice, but if they're not following the world, which really is the way of the devil, they're following the devil himself. And Paul says that he's the prince of the power of the air, meaning that that this is someone who has princely dominion over you, that you are dwelling within the demonic world, and that you yourself are open to demonic influence unless you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on further to say that it's the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that that is the natural default position of the natural man or woman. Disobedience to God. Not, well, I'm trying my best and I, I, I try to do all the right things. But you're still actually actively working against God. Now, that doesn't mean that all of us are born in such a state that we're incapable of doing anything good. Because the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that, yes, we are experiencing total depravity, but not utter depravity. It's not that you're not capable of doing good. It's that you're incapable of honoring God in what you do. Now, read what the Articles of Religion say. This is Article 13 of Works Before Justification. Works done before the grace of Christ and the inspiration of His Spirit are not pleasant to God, for as much as they spring not of faith in Jesus Christ, not do they make men meet to receive grace, or, as the school authors say, deserve grace of congruity. Yea, rather, for that they are not done as God hath willed and commanded them to be done. We doubt not, but they have the nature of sin. So the Bible doesn't teach, it, teach that, that people in their fallen nature are incapable of doing good. Uh, people do all kinds of good things. Uh, if you see a blood drive during a time of crisis, uh, unbelievers and believers alike go and they give blood and they eventually put out a sign that, say, that says, we don't need any more. And yet, these works do not spring from God. I often hear people say things like that. Well, how can we test that something is good? Because it's good. It shows shows good things that come out of it. Not necessarily anything negative is a byproduct of this act or or this relationship or, or whatever it might be. And yet, the Bible teaches and our articles affirm that just because good can come out of something doesn't mean that it is of God. And so, on the one hand, we shouldn't think that everybody is incapable of evil and all they're going to do, or or that all that people are going to do, rather, is evil all the time. Even the most vile are capable of doing good things and, and showing traits like empathy and even sympathy and even being generous. But these things don't necessarily spring from God. In fact, they're sons and daughters of disobedience. Paul says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body 
and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, notice that he switches from you language to we language, and I always think that that's a mark of a preacher who really is pastoring his flock from the pulpit. If you go to a service and you hear a lot of you, 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 uh, it means that the preacher is probably not in touch with his own uh, issues, especially around his own sinfulness that he is struggling with. Uh, but there ought to be a whole lot more we language. But what he wants you to know is that you Ephesians, Gentile believers who have been grafted into God's family, you were once dead in your trespasses, but now he says, in whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, meaning even me, Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews, even I was once where you were, even though I grew up a Jew. That I too was dead in the trespasses and sins, and I once walked in those ways, following the course of this world, which led me in active and passive disobedience to God. And so there's not one of us that, that can escape this. Not one of us who can say, well, golly, I know people, and this describes them accurately. But so-and-so, they're as kind and as generous as they could be. They're certainly not a son or daughter of disobedience. But whether they have one foot over the line in trespasses or their acres deep, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This diagnosis that Paul is making is a diagnosis of every single one of us without exception. So there's no those people. It's all of us in the same boat in need of God's intervention and His saving grace. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now, anytime you see the word flesh in the New Testament, uh, it really means the sinful nature. Uh, so actually, it's the same word used here twice. So literally it says, we all once lived in the passions of, passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and the mind. So it really is our sinful nature that Paul is talking about it. And so already he's talked about those external realities, right? the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in us, but also those things that we carry around in our own bodies, our own hearts, and our own minds. And he draws the distinction between the two. And so it's not as if your heart begins to desire something, but your mind is not quite as corrupted as your heart. No, in fact, our minds are just as corrupted as our hearts, and they don't know better. It's not as if you were faced with the logical choice that you sort of have your heart on one shoulder and your mind on the other, and your heart says, go for it. But your mind says, oh, but consider the cost. No. They're both equally fallen, and if you're living apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't know Him, 
Your mind is not going to save you from the desires of your flesh. And that's not just sexual desires. It's really whatever it is that your heart longs for. And sometimes those things aren't necessarily bad. It may be that your heart longs for security. But then you'll begin to manufacture idols with your heart in order to provide a false security that even though you know those things aren't going to ultimately satisfy you, rather than turning to Jesus, you just manufacture something else in order to take refuge in. You live within the boundaries of the passions of your sinful nature, and you actually live to carry out the desires of your body and your mind. You're living for yourself. And you may think, why not? Why not live for myself? Don't I deserve it? But we see where that ends. It ends in destruction. It ends in heartache. It ends in grief. And actually what seems to be a very reasonable request is active rebellion to God. Because we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's a very strong word that Paul is using here. That we are all by nature children of wrath. Now, growing up, I was told we're all children of God. And there is some truth to that. That we're all made in the image of God. That we all bear His image, and we have creative abilities, and and we're able to, to demonstrate to this earth at some very basic natural level what God may be like. But spiritually speaking, by nature, we're children of wrath. We're children of wrath until God intervenes in our lives and makes us His children by adoption through the Lord Jesus Christ by His cross and resurrection. That's what makes somebody a child of God. And so it's actually unhelpful to say, ah, well, we're all children of God. No, that term, that title is reserved for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ and are in a relationship with the living God. Those whom He has made His children carry that identity. But apart from Him, we're children, we're objects of wrath. Well, wrath from who? The wrath of God. Under condemnation, under judgment, God can't tolerate sin. He can't abide by it. He's a God of justice, and justice will be served. And we're faced with a choice as to whether or not that justice is going to fall on us or whether we're going to hide ourselves in Jesus Christ where the justice of God fell upon Jesus when He died on the cross on that Friday 2,000 years ago outside the city gates of Jerusalem. This, too, was an unpopular idea. 
Several years ago, the Presbyterian Church in the USA, the liberal mainline Protestant denomination in the United States, was compiling a new hymnal, and they wanted to include the great hymn by Stuart Townend, which we've sung here, In Christ Alone. But they wrote Townend and asked if he might be willing to change one part of one verse. And this is what they wanted to leave out. And on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Take that out, the Presbyterian Hymnal Committee said, and we'll put it in our hymnal. And to his great credit and to God's great glory, Stuart Townend said no. It stands as it stands, not because it's a piece of art that I have constructed, a poetical form of expressing what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's a biblical truth. And we need to come to grips with it in order to understand that Friday, in order to understand who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. It is on that cross as Jesus died that the wrath of God was satisfied. And now we are His. And He belongs to us saved by the precious blood of Christ. Isn't that what he says back in chapter 1? In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Redemption, he stood in our stead. When you redeem something, you give something over in order to receive something. And so Jesus gives himself over in order that we might be saved. It's you and I who are supposed to be on that cross. It's you and I that are supposed to come under the judgment of God. And yet Jesus stands in our stead and takes upon the divine justice of God on that Friday. It's a bleak and grim picture that Paul teaches here in the first part of Ephesians chapter 2. But doesn't it have to be? What else would motivate God to send His Son into the world? What else would make our salvation necessary? Some years ago, during the GOEs, the general ordination exams, which all clergy, with few exceptions, have to take before they're uh, ordained in the Episcopal Church. Uh, The I'm okay, you're okay, feel good psychology was all the rage. And uh, so one of the essay questions said, in light of these new pastoral care considerations of our worthiness, interpret your ministry and theology in light of that. And rather than writing an essay, one student drew a cartoon, and on the bottom of the cartoon, he had a stick figure standing on the ground looking up at a stick figure nailed to a cross. And from the stick figure of the cross, he had created a bubble, and on that bubble, he had this stick figure upon the cross saying to the man on the ground, if I'm okay and you're okay, then what am I doing up here? 
If you and I are just okay and need just a little bit of help, then why in the world did Jesus die? Now, rather than just leave it there, I hope you do feel the reality of sin in your own life and where it is that you once came from and where it is that you are now going. And if you're sitting there thinking right now, I think what you have just said is a ton of malarkey, then you may not be a regenerate Christian. It is when the Spirit of God speaks in our hearts that we know that this is all too well true. But that's not where God leaves us. Because what are the next two words in verse 4? But God. Two of the sweetest words in the entirety of the Bible. And that's where we're going to go next week. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would understand who we are apart from you. And Lord, those who even now are listening to my voice and dead and sin and trespasses would be made alive in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would send your Spirit to speak to them, that their ears would be opened, and that they would run to the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would know him and know the freedom that comes by him and no longer serve the servant of the air and and go from being a son and daughter of disobedience to a son and daughter of God. And Lord, may our hearts look forward to our next time together where we hear of the rich mercy that you show us in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.